I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Day at once. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Olivia Shakespeare. Who needs no introduction? But we do. So I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, The Tempest, directed and adapted for film by Julie Taymor in 2010 and written circa 1611 by William Shakespeare. As performers, we believe that Shakespeare is at its best performed, not read. As much as we love theatre and the stage, and as much as we've enjoyed watching film stage productions, we were always going to get to watching a traditional cinema film adaptation of Shakespeare, and that's where we are today. The Tempest is a divisive play at the best of times, and film adaptations of Shakespeare have a real history of hit or miss, But to avoid them would be to miss out on where a lot of people have their first exposure of these works. So we're watching this film where we have a gender-swapped lead character and special effects that would be impossible on stage. But does it accomplish the things that the show wouldn't have done on stage? But for now, for the sake of brevity, a synopsis of The Tempest in one tweet. I was exiled to this island wrongly and now I shall have my revenge by getting my daughter married and being really colonial and bothering people a great deal. My sorcery is so powerful that you'll get cramps and some other stuff. So uh, in the intro part, we talk about how this is a divisive play, but you love The Tempest, right? No. (laughs) No, I really don't. Um, I have only attempted to watch this once before on a digital theater um, version years ago. And I think I got into the first 10 minutes and switched it off. Um, So I don't like this play. Well, I mean, I don't really know what this play was about other than the first 10 minutes, but I didn't like that. And um, I felt that this version and this adaptation was fairly dark and gritty and possibly in places too heavy with the acid trip effects. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think the story's lame. <laughs> and <laughs> really the only thing that saves this for me is some of the settings and costume choices, but otherwise I'm not a fan. Look, I mean, it's a uh, it's a fantasy story. It's kind of different to a lot of other Shakespeare plays. Um, yeah. Um, but even the fantasy ones, this is like this, uh, you know, this would make a pretty good video game, but it, I don't know about it as a... Uh, a play. Oh, okay. I like the play a bit. I think there is a good production in this play. I think you could do a great Tempest. 
I don't think this was a great Tempest. No. I think to the Tempest is um is a play that unlike a lot of other Shakespeare, this one has aged quite badly. Oh, hasn't it ever? Yeah, a bit. Um and they've made some decisions. Julie Taymor has made some decisions in this adaptation that have clearly been that they've set out to kind of update the piece and make it more interesting. The first um, and most obvious one being that they have taken the character of Prospero, the nascent Duke of Milan, and turned it into Prospera, played by Helen Mirren, made this man into a woman. Yes. And that does change things a bit. Yes, although we did get through the entire play and only at the end did I turn to you and go, I feel like I know the name Prospero, not Prospera. Yeah. And you were like, yeah, it's normally a dude. I'm like, huh. Didn't notice. But I mean, there are a number of ways you can take the Tempest sort of traditionally. Um, it's actually traditionally thought to be like a, a, an extended allegory, an extended meta- metaphor for um, Shakespeare's own life and his sort of power as a, uh, as a playwright. And then, obviously, once we became good human beings... It became, uh, there was a very heavy focus on the colonialism of it all. Mm. Prospera and her daughter are sent to this island and they claim it as their own and they crush the natives underneath their thumbs and there's that heavy work there. Yeah. But taking Prospera, making the character Prospera a woman, makes it kind of about feminism in an interesting way. And I think that's a good move. I think if you're going to take this play in a different direction, that's probably a good place to start. And it almost makes it, I have in my notes here, this is like feminist Django Unchained. It's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's a revenge fantasy, right? Yeah. She has all the power and she uses it to right the wrongs and to smite her enemies. Um, real big uh, Rita Repulsa energy, especially at the Now, Rita Repulsa was the bad guy from Power Rangers, the original Power Rangers. Oh my God. The witch. You're such a nerd. And then there's the scene right at the beginning of this adaptation where she is causing the tempest, which causes the boat to crash. Yes. And she's staring out into the into where the storm is happening, and she's got the staff above her head, and she's shaking it up and down. Oh, and... it's a real Moses look is what it is. Yeah, so I think it is this kind of uh, feminist revenge fantasy, and that's that's cool. Um, I don't know if it being an interesting concept is enough to save it from some of their foibles in the actual execution. Yeah, well, I mean, while we're sort of talking about, you know, good and bad choices that they've made about this, I think Prospera's opening monologue that Helen delivers right at the beginning of the play, so it's after this Tempest initial storm moment, and she's wearing a really badass coat. Like, it's it's just fabulous. It's a fabulous coat. But she sort of has this big, long monologue delivering to her daughter Miranda. And the monologue is basically exposition. But I really enjoyed it. Like, I thought for a moment watching that monologue that I might actually enjoy this show. This is very early on in the show. And I was like, oh, I understand what's happening now. Because the way that that monologue has been edited somewhat by Julie in the adaptation writing... um, and Helen's delivery of it, it felt very natural. It felt very emotionally connected, um, even though it was basically just exposition explaining what on earth this show was going to be about. But unfortunately, as 
the story progressed and as the film progressed, I began to like that character less and less and less because I basically saw her try and justify her acts of oppression and make really awful choices. And now my problem is less with the actors themselves and more with Shakespeare's story and Julie Taymor's adaptation of it. Yeah. But as you were saying about the colonial feel about it. Yeah. Which is a reality and something, you know, I think we'll get to a little later on in this conversation um, that there's some real problems with this story. Um, it's in some yeah, well, in a in a way that we haven't really run into yet with Shakespeare, and is inevitable when you're dealing with works that were f- made 400 years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, like Prosper gives two main reasons for why she's oppressing her quote unquote slaves in the play. And the first one is, I'm better than the last guy. I'm not as bad as the last guy. And the second reason is, you did wrong by me. It's like, oh. Well, well, not just that. She also says that Caliban is a born devil on whose nature nurture can never stick, which is fully a thing that was used to justify the keeping of black slaves in America. You know, like this idea that this is their nature. Yeah. There's just one thing I wanted to say about the very, very beginning. Yes. Um, when we're talking about that opening monologue. Mm. So the way we do this, we both watch the play together. Yes. I'm actually watching it with the play text in front of me. I kind of read it as I go along because it works a bit better for me. And one of the benefits of that is I get to see where they cut and where they move things around. Yeah. Now, she made some huge cuts, especially later in the play. Mm. But the beginning is relatively, like, there's a there's a bit of cutting and a bit of shifting around, but oh. especially... Especially when it comes to the things that Prospero that Prospero says, yeah, um, that's all kind of in there as it was written by Shakespeare. Huh. And I think one of the interesting things about that is this is towards the end of his career as a playwright. Mm. He's better. He's better than he was at the beginning. He's more well practiced, and I think he <laughs> he kind of he gets through the exposition real quick. Yeah, it's sort of you know let's get this set up and then we can do the drama. You yeah. know. It's not tons and tons and tons of setting up where we are and what's going on. It's Well, it's also a much simpler story. Let's talk about Caliban. I think Caliban is an interesting character in this. I know that they refer to him as Indian or from the Indy. Oh, it's really unclear. There is a suggestion. They they never do what happens in, like, for example, Othello, where they call him a Moor, and it, it's it's clear, very it's clear. A clear reference. Um, very clear. But certainly in this production, mm. Jaimon Hunsu is playing this character, and they're definitely setting up their version of Caliban as being African. And he's wonderful. He is. He's an actor I've seen in a lot of stuff before, especially in the action world. He gets a lot of play. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected him to be a Shakespearean actor just based on the action stuff I've seen him before. But his work, his physicality and his choices in characterization of the character of Caliban is just beautiful. And they've done some beautiful costuming and makeup on him for this film. Oh my gosh, it is just stunning. Like, it's probably one of my favourite things about this this film. Yeah. So there are a few ways to approach this problem of what to do if your play is horribly racist, right? (laughs) Um, There's a few different approaches to it. And the thing that I think they've tried to do here is make us empathize with Caliban yep. and make it clear that what Prosper is doing is wrong. Right? Yeah. And then it then it becomes a moral story, right? It becomes a moral parable. And I think part of why 
Jamun Hunsu's embodiment of this character is so strong is to give him that sort of strength and dignity, mm. especially in the first scene, mm. you know, the scene of anger. It's just really, we understand that Prospera is powerful from seeing her take down a ship. We yeah. understand that Caliban is powerful through the strength of his words. Yes. But I'm not sure that, okay, in that first scene, I think they struck the balance. Yeah. And then I think they went right off the deep end. Yeah. And it's it's difficult because the character of Caliban is tricked by two clowns into into believing that they are as powerful as Prospera is. I wanted to talk about the clowns in this because there is really no reason to have the clowns there other than the fact that we get to see more Caliban. Yeah. It, There's no reason to have them. It doesn't progress the story yeah, effectively. Exactly. Like, it's not a necessary part. You could have cut all of that out. And, I mean, I love Alfred Molina yes. as an actor. I think he's wonderful and I think he's beautiful. Russell Brand. You didn't like Russell Brand in this? Oh, look, I'm just not about the hype for Russell Brand. I'm sorry. I just, I think Russell Brand is at his best as a clown. Oh, yeah, he's an excellent clown. I'm not saying that I don't think he's a good clown. And he ha- he gave a good performance in this. But I think I think the two of them working together gave the material for Caliban. But it was, it was disappointing and soul-crushing to see this character, Caliban, be taken from this position of oppressed strength to then being painted as a fool. Yes. So when I talked at the beginning about sort of, there are a few different ways to do this play. One of them is as this allegory for Shakespeare's life. There's one for it being about colonialism and then this new one about feminism. Yeah. Uh, Like, I think the feminism is a viable thing, but I think you need to address the colonialism. It's the Mm. elephant in the room. Yeah. Like, this this is a film done in 2010, and I'm sort of sitting here watching this racist parable play out you know and it's i think there's there's a way to split that particular line yeah but i don't think they accomplished it in this play and it's made all the worst by the strength of german's performance like the lead in this play and i don't know if we've said that before this was played by helen mirren I think I just said Helen, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Helen Mirren plays this. I think Jaimon Hunso did a better job than she did. Yeah, I agree. In general. Um, it's interesting to compare her performance in this to the first show that we did, which is As You Like It, especially because there is a similarity between their two performances. I think in this, Helen, again, embodies a more masculine energy, but I don't believe her as much. You know, it's probably just because I think... The character she was playing was, you know, a morally compromised character. And so when we see morally compromised characters go out and get their revenge and get what they wanted, it's a little hinky. Yeah. I think the character who played Ferdinand, who is the classic standard useless Shakespeare romantic male lead, I think he did a solid job. I think he was fine. (gasps) You know, it's not the best part in the world. Playing Miranda's a lot better. I mean, playing either of them is terrible, but that's fine. I think two of the men that were brought, so Antonio and Sebastian, were played by Chris Cooper and Alan Cumming, who are both awesome actors and completely underused in this role. Heck yeah, when I saw in the cast list that Alan Cumming was going to be in it, I got all excited, and then we barely saw him, and I was like, 
I got more Russell Brand than I did Alan Cumming, and I'm an Alan Cumming girl. Like, give me Alan. I want Alan. There's one. There's one good scene for them where they're talking to each other about they're going to kill the other two, and then it just doesn't happen. Yeah, they're going to usurp the king. And the character of Ariel, the spirit, is played by Ben Whishaw, who we have actually seen do Shakespeare before. We saw him in the National Theatre production of Julius Caesar in London. Yes, uh, playing Brutus, in which he was absolutely incredible. He was amazing. And Ten years before that, he did The Tempest and was naked and CG the entire time. And it was weird. It was weird. I thought it was fine. I don't know what else you could do with Ariel. Well, here's the thing, right? They did on film what you could not do on stage. And I kind of feel there's a reason why you don't do that on stage. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this then. About the uh, taking the stage play and putting it on screen. Yeah. Right? Obviously, there's the benefit of what you just said. You're able to take the special effects and do that, right? Mm. But don't you think that this play is at its best as a kind of vehicle for theatrical special effects? Well, and this is the thing I get at, right? Like, Le Boite Theatre Company in Brisbane put on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream a few years back when I went to see it. And their Puck character was played by a light that lit up on a radio. So all of the dialogue was either spoken from offstage by an actor or pre-recorded. I don't remember which. But um, basically any time the Puck character had lines or interacted, it was this voice that came from this transistor radio. And I thought that was actually quite magical because Puck's meant to be this mischievous sprite that gets in and around and and makes things happen. It's it's the same character as Ariel. And I just thought, how imaginative and how insightful. And I would love to have seen something more like that as an Ariel character rather than the CG version that we saw. Because there's one spot where Ariel is reporting back to Prosper about creating the Tempest. And in the film version, all of a sudden, the underscore of this heavy rock music comes in. It's like, yeah, Ariel's such a badass. You knocked down the ship. Rock music. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Isn't that exactly what you'd expect from a bad theater production? Though? Yes. Like, <laughs> and this is why I did not expect it from this film with all of these people in it. Yeah, all these people making decisions. How do things like that get to be played? But a great example is there is a scene in this play when Prospera and Miranda first find Ferdinand, and Ferdinand pulls his sword on Prospera, and Prospera, with her staff, mm-hmm. knocks it out of his hands like without touching it. Like it's a it's uh, a magic thing. It's a magic thing, right? Yeah. And it just kind of looked silly in film. And I guarantee you, if you put that on stage, it would have been like, ooh, that was cool. Exactly. Whereas on film, it was like, ah. So isn't this just a vehicle for Coos the Theatre? And if that's the case, why does turning it into a film make it better? And I promise we're not going to hate on every Shakespeare film. Oh, heck no. There are Shakespeare films that we really love. Yeah. I just, this one was not. This one did not hit the mark for me. It was not good. (laughs) And in fairness... I haven't seen a, a theatre version either that hit the mark for me. So, you know, this, this play is losing all round for me. <laughs> so here's the thing. I think that there probably is good Tempest out there. And if you have a suggestion for a good version of The Tempest we should watch, slide into our emails and tell us and I will make Tammy go watch it. I can't guarantee that I will, but I'll make Tammy go watch it. Oh yeah, thanks for that. So let's talk about the stuff that went on in this play. Yeah, so... I really did not like the 
intimate moments between Miranda and Ferdinand. Okay. Because they dang whispered the entire time. I hate when they just sit and whisper at each other and you can't hear them. I mean, I really like that bit. I really like those bits between uh, Miranda and Ferdinand. I think that there were a moment of humanity in a show that's not about humanity. Fair. I see that. I get that point. I guess... I guess because I wanted to connect with it so much, because I was frustrated watching the play, I wanted it to be good, and because I couldn't hear them, I found that frustrating. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's quite a bit in this play that, sorry, in this in this specific film adaptation, that doesn't hit uh, the mark out of execution. Right, um, the the CG we were just talking about before is a great example. Some of the CG just looks quite bad, like it was cheaply done. Yeah, but it's 2010 CG. See, Okay, sweet. It's seven years after Lord of the Rings. Do better. There's some funny stuff, though. Uh, there's a scene where everyone from the ship is thrown into the sea, and then apparently they come up onto land, and their clothes are better than they were before they went into the water, and they all came out dry. Yes. And the way they've executed this is just the worst, weirdest CG completely dry men walking out of the ocean. Well, how they've done it is they have filmed them walking backwards into the ocean and then sinking down and played it back in reverse so that it looks like they're coming out of the water and they're dry. It's at the same time a bad, it's not a great way to do this, but also funny. As another example of a thing that's kind of bad, but I really liked, (laughs) uh, there's a point at which Ariel, uh, the spirit, turns into a giant bird. Yeah, I did not. I did not get that. Well, I don't know, but he he made a good bird. <laughs> it took me a minute to realize it was the same guy, yeah. but you know, it's fine. It's it, everything else is just completely nude and you know, flitting around and jumping in and out and, and, and disappearing and reappearing and the only time in which he appears to take a physical form is when he is a like bird person like it's terrible bird makeup this oh the cg was really scary because like they had the human face and kind of a human body sort of covered in feathers ish but then they had these little sticky bird legs out the bottom it was it was the stuff of nightmares (laughs) so was there anything else that you sort of got from this play before we move on to our our big complaints (laughs) There is one thing I found interesting about this is that there's a, a, a cool twist at the end. It kind of is suggested in dialogue that uh, Prospera is dying. It is? Well, she says, I will live out the end of my days, which are coming sooner than we, than I think and I think about all the time. And it's it kind of gives her motivation for what she's done up to this point, because why go through this huge process of bringing these people onto the onto your island and then not? just killing your enemies? I I don't know. I mean, she tortures them and she's doing it now because it's convenient because they have been on a ship sailing past the island she was exiled to to drop the king's daughter off to marry her off and they were on their way back. I just thought it was interesting because it's kind of the last thing we hear from Prospera. It provides an interesting motivation for her character. And I also think it's an interesting choice that's very modern. I think... Shakespeare at its best is sort of modern beyond its time. And yeah. that little dramatic choice, I think, is the, is one of the few things in this play, certainly, that I think made that happen. So we've talked a lot about the stuff we hate, but let's double down. What did you especially hate? <laughs> what made me angry? Yes. 
Okay, so Miranda's 15. Yes. What the heck? What the actual heck? There's no good reason to keep her as a 15-year-old in this adaptation when we're bringing it forward into a modern context. Poor girl gets her first period, and so Caliban assumes that it's completely okay to rape her. And so her mother, Prospera, says, no, 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 Caliban, that's naughty. I'm going to punish you by making you my slave, because that's totally okay. Um, but then mo- the mother, Prospera, turns around and sets Miranda, a 15-year-old, up for marriage with some stranger that's been shipwrecked on the beach. Well, not, not just a stranger, literally the second man she's ever seen. Yes, and to top it off... Whilst she is setting up this said marriage and for them to fall in love, she then goes and tortures the poor guy. Yeah, it's... Like, what kind of messed up family dynamics is this? The character of Miranda is a weird one to me. It's it's just, it kind of should be good. You get to play naive, like seriously naive, and that's the whole character. She's literally never seen people before. But yeah. then she's not really given the opportunity to explore that in a dramatic way. No. I mean, she literally says, when her mother says this is not the only man on the earth, and Miranda goes, that's okay, I'm happy with this one, I'm good, one and done. (laughs) And then when she sees all the other men, she says, you know, the famous line from the play, oh, brave new world that has such things in it, right? And It's sad to think that that's what the context of that famous line is. Yes. A woman going, oh, look, how many beautiful men there are. It's a reverse Tarzan in the worst way. What made you angry, Luke? I've already spoken a little bit about how how ridiculously racist this play is. And exploring colonialism is completely valid. Art is at its best when it explores the bad things. I just... If you're making a production of The Tempest in 2010, I think you need to be really, really explicit that Prospera is not the protagonist of this play. She does bad things. That keeping someone as a slave is a bad thing. There's this contrast in the scenes between Prospera and Caliban. This contrast between um, Caliban's mother, Sycorax, as kind of the uncivilized, and Prospera as the civilized. And... You need to address how problematic that is. You can't just leave it and say, well, we're talking about something else. If you do that, then you're missing out on, not only are you missing out on huge parts of what your production, what your adaptation can be, it's actively bad. It's actively immoral to avoid talking about that stuff. Yeah, and I'm nodding furiously over here. Like, I totally agree. And on top of the fact, like, this is an adaptation written by a woman, right? So she's taken Shakespeare's work and she has made the change of, you know, the regenderizing of the main character. Which is completely valid. Which is completely valid. But it's so disappointing to see that one step taken but not taking it further. Like, because, I mean, let's be honest, we're adapting Shakespeare's work. So we're honouring Shakespeare's work, but we are adapting it for a modern context and we are, you know, playing it now. So if you're going to do the regenderizing, why not actually, you know, go further and, and tweak the story a bit or focus on different areas? Anyway. I, I honestly believe you could. I honestly believe you could do that. I honestly believe that there is a version of this play where Caliban has strength, and he has dignity, 
yeah. without being, you know, sort of the noble savage trope, it, the not going down that route, but giving him strength and dignity and making it at the end very clear that what Prospera has done is wrong. Yeah. And Caliban is able to, at the end of his torment at the hands of this woman, be strong. Again, I think you can approach that. I think it's possible to do that. Yeah. I think this adaptation fails at doing that. Yeah, I agree. There's also, and this, after saying that, it's this seems like a small complaint, uh, but the biggest thing they cut out of this play is what's called the, the, the mask. It's the uh, sort of the celebration that happens. Um, where Prospera gets Ariel to bring these gods out and they talk. And it's a, it's a really big, it's, it's like four or five pages of dialogue. And in this movie, it's replaced with some acid trippy graphics. Is that what that was? Yeah, that's meant to be five pages of dialogue. Okay, because that acid trip thing was so weird. Like, I'm sitting there going... What is this meant to be? And then all of a sudden it just cuts short. Like it, it, it just it appears disappears as quickly as it appeared, and it was just so weird. Yeah, it's 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 kind of the climax of the whole show, and they just decided, you know what, we don't need it. And so, in a film that's pretty bad, regardless, the end just kind of peters off and happens. Yeah. I don't think it was badly paced. I think that it kind of, we got through it pretty quick. I didn't feel yeah. at all, you know, like I was being crushed under the weight of Shakespeare. No. But the end just kind of, the petering out and the, the weak flaccidness of the end yeah. was totally caused by just this out and out excising of the climax of the show. And I am all for you people who have heard listen to this podcast. I am all for cuts. Shakespeare needs cuts. But you can't cut out big, huge, important parts like this. Well, certainly not. Certainly not in the way that they've done it in this film. Yeah, because it's like I was saying. I think the Tempest is an excuse to put fantastical things on stage and to use your stage magic and to use your dance and to use your music and things like that. Yeah. And this mask should be all of that and more, and it just doesn't do that well. No, it doesn't serve that. Did you actually have any moments that you did like or quotes that you did like from this? There's a couple of quotes I liked. In terms of moments, like we said before, the, the Caliban thing, but there are a couple of quotes I did like. <laughs> There's a, a great um, insult where the character played by Alfred Molina says to the character played by Russell Brand, so between these two clowns, you can swim like a duck, but you look like a goose. Yeah, you know, and it's just I did like that. It's a it's a it's a great insult, and there's a line uh, talking about um, what when they're talking about the bad things done to Prosper when Prosper is saying what what happened to her, um, she says that they they took her and her daughter and they put it put her on a boat, a terrible, rickety, dangerous boat, and she says the very rats instinctively had quit it, much like this show. Well, I've been in a car like that. Oh, really? Yeah, when I was a teenager, we used to drive around in a car that the very rats instinctively had quit. <laughs> it was a 1974 Datsun, and it had rust holes in it, and yeah. That's utterly terrifying. I, I wish I'd known this phrase. It would have been a great way to describe it. <laughs> what did you like? Look, as I said before, I'm not a Russell Brand hype man, but 
I did rather enjoy his quote, legged like a man. He has found Caliban on the ground and he's trying to investigate and trying to figure out what he, because he's under a blanket or whatever. And uh, Russell reaches his hand under the covers and takes a handful of Caliban's balls as he says he is legged like a man. But the other one I liked was, uh, just just because it's corny, um, now I will believe that there are unicorns. <laughs> um, and that's said by Sebastian, which is the character played by Alan Cumming. And, oh, Alan, we could have had so much more of you in this play. Yeah, I, I think we'll probably see some more Shakespeare with him in the future, because I think he's done so. more. Yeah, he has. So, Luke, would you watch this fabulous play or adaptation again? I'm never going to watch this film again. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't buy it. I rented it from YouTube. Yeah. So if anyone's been swayed by our wonderful review today, <laughs> you can go and rent it on YouTube and make a decision for yourself. I swear there's a good play in this play. I just It just feels like it to me. Maybe a weird adaptation. I hear there's an anime adaptation of this. Oh, lordy. Like, but just something that isn't just doing the Shakespeare play. I, like, I think there's good, good bones there. Uh-huh. But the meat is gross. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't watch it again. No. There's a lot of actors I like in this, but it's a hard pass for me. How many spears would you shake at this? Two. Very angrily. And only two because of the costumes in the set, really. Did you know that this this movie got uh, got nominated for an Oscar? What costume design? Which oh, pro- that makes so much pro- sense. Pro- the pro- costume pro- design pro- is exquisite. The costume design is not good enough to make you want to watch this movie. No, it's really not. Unless you're a costume designer and you can just put it on mute. Yeah, uh, one and a quarter spheres from me. <laughs> one and a quarter. One and a small quarter. It's a dud. It's a dud. <laughs> put a fork in it. It's done. Wrap it up. Send it home. <laughs> A sonnet that is not sonnet 18. Sonnet 30. When to the sessions of sweet silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past, I sigh the lack of many a thing I sought, and with old woes new, wail my dear time's waste. Then can I drown an eye unused to flow, her precious friends hid in death's dateless night, and we refresh love's long-since-cancelled woe and moan the expense of a vanished sight. Then can I grieve at grievances forgone and heavily from woe to woe tell all the sad account of forbemoaned moan, which I knew pay as if not paid before. But if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored. And sorrows end. You've been listening to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters. You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL Podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. Feel free to send us any questions there, or send us an email at HSAULpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are available. Next time, we'll be watching the 2010 production of The Merry Wives of Windsor, performed at the Globe Theatre. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions, and music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. 
up above her head and she's shaking it up and down. Oh, and it's a real Moses look is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Moses, Rita Repulsa, Lord Zed, that kind of thing. You know, all the classic you know, villains yeah. per se. <laughs> um, but... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> 